0: Welcome to episode 11 of the Via Emmaus podcast where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks. I'm here with David Strock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. In this episode, we'll look at the last chapter of Luke and begin to consider the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. So in Luke 24, we find the resurrection of Christ and a few events that happened on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room. Because this podcast gets its name from Luke 24, we might ask the question, why is this name so important?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Luke 24 is an incredibly important passage uh, because it talks about the resurrection, Mm. right? I mean, what is more important in the Gospels than the reality that when Christ died, he rose three days from the grave. Right. uh, rose three days later, right? And so we see that laid out in Luke 24, and I just think the the, the heart of God is just displayed in Luke 24. Uh, as we see Jesus um, going and pursuing these two disciples uh, who on the day of his resurrection were so uh, disheartened and discouraged that they left uh, and went to this town about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus goes to them uh, to open their eyes to who he is and uh, in the middle of the night to bring them back to Uh, The upper room. And in the midst of all this, we learn a great deal about how Jesus read the Bible. It seems as though during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, he's spending his time talking to the disciples about the kingdom of God and how to interpret the Old Testament in light of his death and resurrection. We see that in the beginning of Acts. Uh, And so here, in verse 27, it says that he interpreted to them all the things from the Law and the Prophets. We begin to understand how Jesus is reading the Old Testament and giving us a model, through the apostles in particular, uh, for us to read it as well. So I think those are some of the reasons why this passage is so important, uh, and why this podcast takes its name from Luke 24.
0: Along the road to Emmaus, we also find the following scripture. Luke 24, verses 13 through 16. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why is it that at this time the disciples or the two men were not able to recognize that they were walking with Christ?
1: Yeah, so just to again read the whole chapter helps us to see what's going on here. There's going to be a lot of openings that take place here the opening of the eyes, the opening of the scriptures, the opening of the hearts. Uh, verse 16 certainly talks about that their eyes were kept from seeing Jesus. Right. Uh, and then in verses 18 uh, through 24, uh, it continues and says, Then one of them named Cle- Cleopas uh, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened uh, in these days? And uh, he said to him, Jesus said to him, what things? He's playing coy here. trying yeah. to find out what's going on. Uh, and they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. It really seems as though they're kind of unpacking their own understanding of who Jesus was. Uh, that he's a prophet still to them. And he talks about our chief priests at this right, time. Yeah. And and what Jesus has come to do is to completely flip that around. He's not just the prophet. He's also the priest. He's also a king. He's the Messiah who's going to bring about a kingdom, not through just the powerful overthrow, but through His death and resurrection. Um, and so uh, it seems as though their eyes, these disciples' eyes, are still closed to that. Uh, but Jesus is about ready to rebuke them. Uh, in verse 25 through 27, And to begin to unpack the scriptures for them as they walk this road from Jerusalem uh, to Emmaus. When they get there, they sit down to eat a meal. And this is what's really amazing. uh, Is that in verse 30, it says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And Luke 22, verse 19, it's almost the exact same four verbs that he's using, where he took the bread, he gave thanks for it, here's he blessed it, then he broke it and he gave it to them. Right. It seems as though that Luke is intentionally picking this up and reminding the readers, just a couple chapters earlier, of that communion meal, that last supper. Right. And now when he breaks the bread, which he said earlier Luke 22, represented his body, it's at that moment that their eyes are opened. Wow. Right? And so it seems as though what Jesus is doing here, what Luke is doing, recording this event with Jesus, is to show that as He taught from the Law of the Prophets, Jesus comes and fulfills it. And the only way to understand the Law and the Prophets now is through the finished work of Christ, represented by the death and resurrection in the broken bread. But of course, He actually did die and rose again, and He's explaining that to them, and their eyes are opened In this moment. And so it explains a couple things to us. In fact, the verses 32 through 35 unpack this a little bit further. One, that Jesus had opened the scriptures to them when they were on the road. Right. And two, when that happened, their hearts were burning. Uh, It seems as though God was working just in their hearts to hear these things. But now their eyes are open to see who Jesus is. And even though they told Jesus to stay with them and to rest a while because it was late, they get up at that very moment and go back to the upper room. They return to where God's people are right. so that Jesus can come into that room and be with them at that point.
0: So is there any takeaways that we can um, glean from all this?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think one is that we can't see Jesus until God opens our eyes. Right. Right? The eyes of faith are something that is not natural to man because of our sinful condition, but something that God must give to us. Luke 24 helps us to see that. Mm-hmm. Right, The eyes of the heart are opened by the scriptures. Right, So, it's not as though that Jesus comes and tells them who He is apart from the scriptures, right. but amazingly, He opens the scriptures and shows how He fulfills these things. So, the way that we know that Jesus is the Christ is according to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And then the breaking of the bread, again, is reflective of the cross of Christ, where we see Christ most clearly. That the only way that we can understand how the law and the prophets are fulfilled is by going to the cross, going to the resurrection. And in those moments, we begin to see all that was promised in the Old Testament.
0: Right. And this helps us to understand the rest of Luke uh, 24 also. Let's take a look at John's gospel. What are some things that we should look for or expect in the book of John that are different from the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke?
1: Yes, if you remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, were the synoptic Gospels, Correct, right, they had yeah. the same vision that was being presented there. John, in contrast, is written a little bit later, presents Jesus in a distinctively different way. Um, doesn't attempt to repeat the work of the other Gospels, uh, but to give a more theological vision. What I mean by that is that instead of beginning with Jesus' birth the way that Matthew and Luke do, uh, he begins right there in the ve- beginning by going back to creation. That's right. Yeah. Right? So John 1, he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So this name word or this logos is the son, right? We right. know that because in chapter 1 verse 14 it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So he's making Reality here to say that this word is God, but yet this word is distinct from God, where the whole book of John is going to be getting into the relationship between the Father and the Son. Right. Right? And this is going to be perhaps most helpful to understand okay, who is the triune God? Uh, More than any other book in the New Testament, John's Gospel helps us to see that God is one. Jesus will say that in John 10, verse 30, the Father and Son are one, and yet the Father is the one who sends the Son. Mm-hmm. The Son obeys the Father in going. When the Son completes His work, He returns to the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Right, And it's in those different uh, processions that we begin to understand that there is one God in three persons, right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that comes out in John's Gospel. That's something unique and something we should be looking for as well. Uh, John's gospel also takes its cues from the temple and the sacrificial system in Israel. So, this way, John's gospel begins with Jesus cleansing the temple in John 2. Even before that, in John 1, verse 14, again, it speaks of uh, the words dwelling, uh, tabernacling uh, with man. So, that's temple imagery. Uh, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus will be described in terms familiar to Israel. So he's the bread of life who is greater than the manna that was given in uh, the wilderness. Uh, He is the light of the world, uh, just as that he is a greater light than what was even found in the temple or shining out from the temple. Um, And he's the true vine who will bear fruit. Where Israel failed to bear fruit over time, Jesus is going to bear fruit, especially the branches that abide in him. So just those who are reading John's Gospel, kind of big picture, uh, begins with a Very theologically minded prologue, verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. Then chapters 1 through 12 are the book of signs, where we see everything from the miracle that takes place at the wedding in Cana, all the way to the resurrection of Lazarus. And all these different signs are pointing to the power of God in Jesus' life. And then we come to the book of glory, uh, which is seen in chapters 13 through 20. But the way that glory is defined in John's gospel uh, is not exaltation so much as it is um, exaltation through suffering. Right? When Jesus is lifted up, that's exaltation language, but he's lifted up on what? On on the cross. Right? And so we see that his glory comes through his obedience to the Father. And by doing that, by going to the cross, dying, and rising again, his glory is seen, and then the end of the book again comes to the resurrection and what Jesus does after he's raised from the dead. And that's seen in John twenty one. So so keeping some of those things in mind helps us to, to read John and see some of its uh, distinctions from the other Gospels.
0: So you mentioned just a moment ago how the book of John starts, you know, all the way back to Genesis, all the way to the beginning. Yeah. Um, why did John make these declarative statements going back to creation at the beginning of this book?
1: Yeah, so again, John 1, verses uh, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you can see how John is building his first few sentences there from the scriptures found in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Right, yeah. Right, where God has created the world. The Spirit is hovering over the waters, bringing into form the things that are formless and void at that time. And then he's going to begin to speak in, in Genesis 1, verse 3. And he says, Let there be light, and there was light. And so John picks up all of these things. I think one of the things that this does right at the outset is that it identifies Jesus in his divine nature, uh, that he is the creator of the world. Um, So Arius was someone who said that Jesus, the Son of God, was the firstborn of all creation, the first one made. But Mm -hmm. Of course, the New Testament tells us that no, he was the creator himself. There Mm -hmm. was not a time. When he was not, he was always with God. He always was God. Right? Yeah. Right. So we see that from the very beginning. It also identifies Jesus as the one who is the Creator, who's bringing about a new creation. Right. So in the Gospels, we not only see that Jesus is coming as a Messiah to fulfill the promises of the old, but he's also bringing a new order. He's bringing a new way of life. And so as John begins with this theme of creation, he's helping us to see how. Jesus is going to be bringing resurrection life through his ministry, his life, and his death. And his resurrection. Right. Right. Oftentimes we talk about creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And it's easy for us to think, okay, we're in this period now of redemption, and someday in the future there will be a new creation. Right. But if we remember, actually, no, in the resurrection, new creation began. Right. Right. New creation is not something that is only in the future, it's something in the present. It began with Christ, and every time someone is born again, they're experiencing these realities of new creation life. Right. Uh, so Paul can speak of it in the way that we are new creatures in Christ. The old is going away, has passed away, the new has come. And I think that same idea is being introduced in the very beginning of John's Gospel uh, to show us that Christ is God, He is the Creator. and As we read through the Gospel, we'll see how He's bringing life to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins.
0: This has always been fascinating to me. I've always wondered about this, mm-hmm. is that uh, in the the Bible, especially in John 1, but in a, in a few other places too, it talks about Jesus when he was first calling his disciples. Yeah, And you, you see the words, follow me, Yeah, quite often. Mm-hmm. And the Bible says that Jesus said, follow me. Yep. And they stopped what they were doing. Yeah. They left their lives behind yeah. and they followed him. Yep. And I just wondered why, um, you know, at that time, not having any real belief, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, as we talked about before, the disciples didn't come to, matter of fact, in this episode, we were talking mm-hmm. about how yeah. they didn't really come to um, a true understanding yeah. until after the death, burial, and resurrection and uh, when they recognized that that he was alive sure. so i wondered why at this point they so easily gave up everything and followed him was it just an anticipation of who he might be or yeah
1: that's a great question because it really applies to our own lives right, right yeah. do when we hear that call to follow me do we leave everything behind as well and mm. do that right it's a good point so you know how does this apply to us but to understand how it applies to us we need to see how it applies to them right yeah and i think john one's really helpful in this because we don't see in john one quite as stark a contrast as we do in like matthew Right where Jesus comes to the fishermen on the seashore, yeah, yeah. And says follow me. They leave their father, they leave their business, they leave their nets, they leave everything behind. It's like whoa, what <laughs> yeah. has <just> happened here? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I think John one actually helps explain part of that because mm-hmm. I think John one is actually the backstory to Matthew's gospel, where we see Jesus calling his disciples to follow him, especially Peter and John at that point. Right, yeah, right. That it seems as though John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus and in John 1 we begin to see how these men were already followers of John the Baptist. That's correct, yeah. Right. And John the Baptist now in John's gospel, John the apostle is pointing people to Jesus, right? So John 1:29, right? He's the one who tells us that this is the lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world. Right. Right? And these disciples of John the Baptist are encouraged to follow after Jesus. In fact, in John 3, it will say that John the Baptist understood his role as a friend of the bridegroom, Mm -hmm. and he was delighted to see the bride go to the bridegroom. Right. Right, and so I think that helps us to understand, okay, when Jesus comes calling in the other Gospels, they already know about John's message, John the Baptist. Right. They already know Jesus and what he's doing. And then, of course, they have the entire Old Testament that is preparing the way for them to be looking for the Messiah. Right. Right, and so when this Messiah comes... Uh, they're going to want to be a part of the Messiah's kingdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously that's going to look different to them than what they're anticipating. And that's part of that learning process for them. Oh, the Messiah is coming not to receive his kingdom and glory, but to actually go to the cross and die. And this is another reason why in John's Gospel we see many who receive the name disciple actually go away. Mm. Right, John six in particular, he has these hard sayings, and people are going away from him yeah. because uh, he says, "You to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must be willing to die with me to find life in me." Right. Yeah. Right. And so I think what we see is that there, all of those who have the name disciple in the days of Jesus, may not actually go the distance mm-hmm. because uh, it's not that they had salvation and lost it, but because some of those followers weren't born again, Mm. right? And that's why that John 3 passage and understanding how new life, new creation life is given by the Spirit, it's going to be revealed as those who not only follow Jesus, but who continue to follow Jesus.
0: So does that, so when I hear that, it makes me think of, um, I need your help here, but the scripture where... um, The guy is saying, but we cast out demons in your name, and we did prophecies, and Jesus said, "Um, I never knew you. I I wonder if that somehow relates to that. Well, people were following after him, but not necessarily born again. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, so Matthew 7 is where it speaks to the fact that, you know, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right, yeah. And this is where I think it's helpful to see that when we come into the Gospels, we haven't fully come into the New Covenant era yet. Mm -hmm. Even in the book of Acts, the transition period, right? Where they were worshiping in the temple, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be long before that temple was being torn down, and Jesus as the cornerstone of a new temple is being built up. Mm -hmm. right? So then in Ephesians and Colossians, it can describe how this temple, the flesh and blood who have trusted in Christ... This temple being building and growing throughout all of the earth. Right. Yeah. Right? And so when we come to these things, it's like there are people who are uh, doing things under the old covenant. Maybe even prophesying. Maybe even casting out demons. Maybe doing all these different things, um, but they haven't experienced the new creation life that mm-hmm. Jesus is bringing through His death and resurrection. So to your point, um, to be born again or to be born from above in John three is the is the key to being able to see that kingdom. Uh, It's not the works that we do, but rather it is the faith that we have in Christ. And as we read through John's Gospel, see that faith is not just something we produce in ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's the gift of the Spirit that comes through that new birth.
0: Seemingly, as in Jesus' time here on earth, Mm -hmm. it is still very difficult for even people today to follow after Christ. Um, There's so many people, and we've talked about this before, there's so many people who um, want to be I would even say want to be Christians yeah. um, and desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't know if some of it is um, bad theology or they're under sitting under bad theology mm-hmm. or uh, I'm not really sure. But a yeah. lot of people never seem to make that transition or you never seem to. Matter of fact, we talked about it a second ago when we talked about what are we willing to leave behind? Yeah. So. I mean, I I don't want to, you know, talk about too much personal experience, but I can just say that there are things that I I had to leave behind. There are things, and there are still things that, as I grow in Christ, that I continue to leave behind. So I wonder why there seems to be another set of people um, who claim to be Christians or Mm -hmm. who who desire to be Christians, Mm -hmm. who never have any life change, and I don't know how that would be possible if we're coming from. A, a sinful nature yeah. to not leave anything behind as we come to Christ.
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple things there. I think faith always comes with repentance, mm. right? The gift of faith that is generated by the Spirit right. is always going to be one that is turning away from the idols and the sins of this world towards Christ, mm. right? And again, we talked about this on Tuesday, with just uh, in our study in Hebrews, where the Father it disciplines His children. Right? the son intercedes for his for his people and the spirit yearns jealously within right which just reminds us that okay when god saves a person uh, like the whole package is taking place right, right yeah. it's not as though he's going to begin a good work and somewhere along the way he's going to lose one right, yeah. right john 10 even uses the language and the imagery of both the father's hand and the son's hand are holding fast to these sheep that the Father has given to the Son. Mm-hmm. And John 10.26 amazingly says that to Pharisees, um, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Mm. right? But all those who are the sheep, all those who have been given from the Father to the Son, they will believe, and they will believe uh, enduringly, which includes repentance. Right, yeah. But of course, we look at the world and say, man, I've seen some people who sort of seem like they believe for a time, and they've fallen away, and they've denied the faith, and everything else. So, One thing, or maybe two things we can say is, one, I think there's a way that many people in the world today follow Jesus to get something else, Mm. right? Like, he is not their main goal and desire, but rather, they've seen that, oh man, I've got friends, I've got family who follow Jesus, and they get, you know... The, the nice cars, the nice house, the nice life, the nice job, the nice wife, and whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, Jesus becomes a means to an end. Right, yeah. And there's probably something that every follower of Jesus has something like that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways that a true follower, someone who's been born again, proves the fact that they are a child of God is that when they don't get those things, mm-hmm. they don't abandon God, they don't begrudge God. They say, I've got Christ, and that's enough. Mm-hmm. Right, And that purifying process works out to say, okay, I can lose everything. Everything can come against me, but I've got Jesus, and that's what I want.
0: Right. I just had a discussion last night when I was explaining the difference between joy and happiness to my daughter. Mm, yep. And tell her how happiness is based on our emotions and what's yep. going on. Like if somebody brings me a plate, a plate of pancakes, I'll be happy. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> but joy is is even when it's difficult and it's hard, yeah. the understanding that Christ died for me and that my eternity rests in him, that even in the, in the hard times, as Paul said, um, illustrated very very, uh, very often that you know we still find joy um, in serving Christ. And I think that what you were saying kind of lends to that, where the people who endure to the end, mm-hmm. they have the joy um, where other people may be looking for ha- happiness, where, like you said, they may be using Jesus to, uh, or Christianity to, as as a means to an end mm-hmm. outside of yeah. a relationship with Christ.
1: Yeah. Now get this, so John fifteen eleven says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy, so is Jesus speaking, that mm-hmm. my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full.
0: Mm-hmm. Right here. Yeah. This is an
1: amazing reality. That the joy that the Christian has is not just, well, we have a better perspective on life. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's true. Maybe we should have a better perspective on life. But ultimately, the joy that a Christian has is actually something of the joy of the triune God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. So it's His joy that dwells and abides within us. And if it's His joy, it can't be crushed. It can't be stolen. It can't be taken away because it comes with the very power and life of God Mm. in it. Right, yeah. Right. And so, you know, this is where in another... um, passage in Romans 8 you know that there is nothing in creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ mm-hmm. right that's the believer's joy right it may be tempered by all kinds of suffering all mm-hmm. kinds of trials all kinds of but ultimately it will abide right, right? Yeah. it's kind of like in a movie right where all these guns are being, just going off on this thing and then out of the ash heap you know emerges, you know, the guy that's trying to be, like, you can't kill that joy. <laughs> right, yeah. You can't kill Jesus because he's raised from the dead, mm-hmm. and those who are in Christ have the same life in him right. uh, to be able to abide in that.
0: Amen. So I've always wondered about this next bit of Scripture. Uh, it's in John 2, verses 1 through 5. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Whereas Jesus' brothers did not yet believe that he was the Christ, his mother clearly believed that Jesus could do something that was not necessarily possible. (laughs) So... Where did she get her faith from? I mean, why did she? I mean, obviously she she was there in the beginning with yep. the whole immaculate mm-hmm. conception yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. So I, I would guess that 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 was the first miracle. And I guess that's what held her for those thirty years. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good question, right? We know that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, right? Um, because of John seven, right? So right. John seven kind of even shows them kind of goading Jesus to go uh, to Jerusalem at that time. Uh, they will come to faith later. Uh, Mary has faith, and yet she's also seen in places in other gospels where she, with her other sons, right. are coming there asking, "Okay, Jesus, what are you doing? It seems that what he's doing is crazy." Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard to know. I mean, obviously she has great, you know, confidence in her son. By this point, it may be that Jesus is the head of the household, mm-hmm. right? Because his father's not on the scene at that point. So it may be, you know, son, you take care of these things. Jesus' response: "Woman, what does this have to do with me?" Could be a rebuke. Could be something more gentle than that. Uh, commentators have taken this in a lot of different directions, Yeah, yeah. right? Um, I think one thing that's helpful for us in all of these different scenes uh, is to see that, okay, this passage is not so much about Mary, or anyone else as much about Jesus, so what right. does this show us about Jesus? Right. And there are a few clues uh, along the way here, like you see even beginning in verse 1, um, John includes this reference to the third day, right? He picks up a theme that goes throughout the mm. Old Testament, Right? Uh, one of the members of our church, Bruce Forsey, could you know, tell you all kinds of things uh, about this. Uh, he has written a blog for us about the way in which the third day is a turning point in numerous Old Testament passages. Right? It's the day of salvation. It's the day of turning. It's the day um, that God is going to do something new. Mm. Uh, and in this case, it seems as though there is something new. It's the first sign, the first miracle uh, that we see here. And one of the things that we see in this is, one, the absence of wine. Right? The wine has run out. And if we read through John's Gospel, we see that nothing is accidental in the things that he is writing. There's more symbolism in John's Gospel uh, than perhaps the other Gospels. That's another distinction that is made. So when it says that um, Nicodemus came in the night to Jesus in John mm-hmm. 3, well, it's to indicate he's in the dark. Mm-hmm. Right? When. Um, when Judas goes out from Jesus and it is night. Mm-hmm. Well, again, he also is in the dark. Right. Yeah. And so here, when it says the wine has run out, it's an indication of what's going on in Israel. Israel, who is to be a blessed people have a bountiful oh. land, now has lost this. There's a promise in the Old Testament in places like Amos 9 that the wine is going to flow from the hills. And now, when the water in these um, stone pots becomes wine, it's as though Amos 9 is on the verge of taking place, Mm -hmm. right? The wine is going to come back. And again, the symbolism of these stone jars is helpful too. They were used for purification, right? right? And Jesus is taking these purification waters and he's turning them into wine in such a way to say, okay, we're moving from the old covenant to the new. Right? We're moving from the old age to the new age. And when he says that my hour has not come, this is something that's going to repeat uh, throughout John's gospel. shows up again in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and then at the end. Ultimately, his hour is speaking of his cross. Right, His hour has not yet come. Uh, and yet, as we hold on to that phrase, we're going to see that when his hour does come on the cross, who's there with him?
0: Mary. Right.
1: Mary's there again. And at that moment, he gives Mary, he entrusts Mary over to John, the, the writer of this Gospel, to take care of her. And so it seems as though that this is building tension in the Gospel of John to prepare the way for the cross and the resurrection here. And what we can know for certain is not what Mary was thinking maybe in this passage of John 2, but where she was at the end and that Jesus is the one who's taking care of her. Uh, He is securing her faith and trusting in Him. And uh, again, it just reminds us of how God works in our lives, that we often come to Jesus for wrong reasons. And yet Jesus, in His goodness and His wisdom and His faithfulness, holds us fast to bring us to a point where we understand how to rightly come to Him. Uh, And He builds uh, our faith by giving us the faith that we need in Him.
0: We have a verse, John three sixteen, um, that is probably one of the most famous verses. Except you know, there's there's probably another one that that people who who um who are not in the church. What is it? Um,
1: Matthew seven one. Judge not listen <laughs> There you go. That's what I was, that's what I was looking for. <clears throat> so
0: John 3.16 is also one of those verses, um, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that who believes in Him should not perish and have eternal life. What should we learn about this voice? You know, right in context of John's Gospel, is there anything we learn about it?
1: Yeah, so it's always good for us to just to read Scripture in context whenever we come to these passages uh, that are so familiar to us, right? And they're familiar to us because it's one verse taken out of context. Okay. Let's plug it back in and see what's taking shape there, right? And the good news is, like, there's nothing going to be new, new about John 3.16, right? right? But at the same time, when we see that John 3.16 begins with the word for, well, it tells us, oh, well, it's meant to be connected to what came before it. Yes. Right? And so verses 14 and 15 say, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, as reference to the cross that's going to be coming forward, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But if you remember, what in Moses, when did he lift up the serpent in the wilderness? It's in Numbers, right? Uh, Numbers 21, uh, I believe. Uh, and there, the people of God are dying. Because they were grumbling. Mm. And they're dying because in their grumbling, God sent serpents into the camp right. to kill them, basically. But there was a pole that was put in the middle of the camp when uh, a man or woman was bitten by a serpent. They would look to the serpent and they would be saved. Mm-hmm. Right. When we get to number 21, we can unpack that a little bit yeah. more. Right. But that lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness uh, is indicative of... It's a type, it's a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do on the cross, Mm -hmm. right? And so, just as salvation came to the people of Israel who are dying in that place, now Christ, when He is lifted up, is going to bring salvation as well. It may also help us to see that when Jesus is on the cross, He's being treated as a serpent, right? The one who deserves to be crushed is being crushed in the place of others, right? He's taking on Himself what others who are dead because of their sin, um, because of the serpent bite, if you will, are experiencing, those who look to Him will be saved. And so, for God so loved the world. And that so love, we can often, it's just, He loved it so big, so yes. much. And yet, it's the word that actually means in this way. right? Mm-hmm. For God, in this way, loved the world. Well, in what way? Well, He gave His only Son. right? Right. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have uh, everlasting or eternal life. And it's important to say that He loved the world. Right, not just the people of Israel, right? In uh, numbers, it was the people of Israel who were saved by the serpent on the pole. Right, but now it's the entire world, all the Jews and the Gentiles. Right, so it's more inclusive. So one of the things that you see in John one through four is that Jesus comes to be the Savior of the world. Right, right. And John three, it is speaking of the world. In fact, in John four, Jesus will go outside of Israel to Samaria, and there again, it will say that He is the Savior of the world. Right. So so there's this expansion of salvation that also comes with the new covenant. Because the old covenant was for the people of Israel. Now the new covenant is coming, and it'll be for Israel and the nations. Right. Right? So that can help us to see it as well that it's not just that God's love is so huge that it covers all of the world in an indiscriminate way. But say no, God in this way loves the wicked world that is there, the Gentiles as well that he gave his son to die in their place so that ever believes on him will have everlasting life and will not perish the way that they perished because of the curse of god there in the old testament
0: i've seen people use this particular scripture john 3:16 mm-hmm. as a how can i put it as a a way to say that you know god knows my heart so i can he loves me the way i am so i can do you know even i can still do whatever i want to do yeah. and still be in um, in the body of Christ. I, and I, I've, i never, even, even before I was saved, I didn't, something didn't seem, something didn't seem quite right about that. That's
1: and, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, context helps us here, right? Yeah. You just go back a few verses to chapter two, right? Verse 23 says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them the word there behind that word is is pistis right pistuo he did not believe in them mm. right I and mean, i've heard it said you know even when i didn't believe in god god believed in me
0: right yeah just
1: rank heresy <laughs> right i mean <laughs> yeah. it goes against with it no he does not believe in you Right. Like, yeah. the good news is is that he is making a way of salvation so those who today don't believe can be uh, can be broken can be um, can be converted so their hearts would be changed so that they would believe. Right. Right? But ultimately, I mean, justification comes through faith in what God has done. And justification comes by the grace of God that gives us the faith to be able to believe. Right? It's not just this kind of universal good feeling towards all people, no matter what we do. Right, right? Yeah. But rather, if we have been bitten by the serpent, if we are dying, then and we recognize that, and God enables us to see that, then we're going to be turning with all of our energy, all of our might, to believe on the provision that God has made, like that serpent on the pole mm-hmm. and Jesus on the cross.
0: Well, Last question. In John 4, Jesus encounters the woman at the well and begins a long discussion about worship. For instance, John 4, 19-24 reads, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the mountain, or on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him." God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does this teach us about worship today?
1: Yes, if we remember, again, um, Jesus is there in Samaria. Uh, The mountain, this mountain that's being described there is Mount Gerizim, um, that goes to the place where the Samaritans would have been worshiping God. Right, and the people of Israel, the southern tribes, Judah, would have been worshiping there in Jerusalem. So there's a debate about where's the right place to worship. Yeah. And Jesus can say, and it's not about any of those places, right? There's coming a day when you won't worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Right? Because again, in the old testament, the tabernacle, the temple, had a physical location. Right, yeah. But with the new covenant, there's going to be no physical location. If anything, there are going to be Thousands, millions of locations, right? (laughs) Wherever those who are the living stones of God are gathered together in local assemblies, local churches, that is where the Spirit dwells with His people and where they come to worship Him, right? So it's helpful for us to see that we don't need to travel uh, to Israel. We don't need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to have an experience with God. Uh, when I went to Israel a number of years ago, this is one of the things that just really stood out to me. Like, mm-hmm. it was amazing to stand on the Mount of Olives, to look down on the Temple Mount, right. and be able to see the places and things. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane is to the right, and the Valley of Hinnom is right in front of us. And all it's like, you get to see the geography uh, that is there in the Bible. Right. But I came back and realized if I never got to see that, the Word of God is sufficient.
0: That's right. right? Yeah. The
1: Scriptures are sufficient for me to be able to know God and to worship Him rightly. Right? So that's just the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The other thing is just the nature of worship itself is not something where sincere people or people with an intense desire to please God come up with their own ways of worship. Right. Right? We just finished reading through Exodus 32. We know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Right? They worship the true God in the wrong way, and mm-hmm. it was disastrous. Right, yeah. right? So true worship is according and in response to His Word, and it's by the power of the Spirit, right? So when he talks about in spirit and truth, well, later it will speak of the Spirit of truth, that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And earlier in John 3, we learned that it is the Spirit that blows where he wills, right? right. That birth from above, that new birth comes by the Spirit. So what is true worship? It's not being one who is. Uh, of the Old Covenant, the people circumcised in the flesh, like Nicodemus. right? Rather, the true worship is going to be for those who are born again, whether they're from Israel or whether they're from Zimbabwe. right? Yeah. Right. What matters is this new spiritual life that is there, that's in accordance with the truth of God's revealed Word, and that's how the people of God worship rightly.
0: All right, so this concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to via emmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in our upcoming episodes. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources
1: related to this episode and the gospel centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.